You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you as we start a new series. We've had a huge dosage of James over five weeks. Now we're heading into seven weeks of Hebrews. So strap in. This is going to be fun. Hebrews is this fire hose of beauty, of theology, of this picture of God. It's, it's like, for me, honestly, Hebrews is one of those wonderful things to study and read for reflection and one of those very intimidating and daunting things to try and preach because there's so much there. We aren't certain who wrote the book of Hebrews. Go figure. We have a book in the Bible that we're not sure who wrote this thing. But, you know, that's okay. It's still an inspired word, uh, and so it's in the canon. Um, And it's essentially a long sermon. You think I preach long. Um, No, I don't even preach that long. I know churches in town that preach like 45 minutes at standard, right? Like we've come from some of those churches. I don't preach that long. This, This book of Hebrews is either a long sermon or a treatise. Um, that was given to early Christians to encourage them to, like, stay in the faith because the pressures they were experiencing, the challenges that they were facing were becoming unbearable. And some of them started to leave the faith and go back to the Judaism that they knew or other religions or maybe just kind of losing faith altogether. They were at their end. They weren't sure, in other words, if Christ was really greater than all the things that they were experiencing. This can be hard to hear, I think, for people who are experiencing and enduring real pain in their lives, real challenges, real burdens. For someone to say, Christ is greater, don't worry about it, can be the most annoying thing to hear. Amen. Amen. Because the words, Christ is greater, even though they may be true, they don't fix our situation. They're not like a pill that we can swallow and it magically makes everything okay. It's not a magic phrase or an incantation that slaps a smile on our face and just kind of warms our heart and makes everything feel better. And just saying Christ is get, uh, greater does not get us what we want. And yet this is the message of Hebrews. Christ is greater. Slogans like this It won't, if we're honest, like, let's be real, slogans will not keep people from leaving the faith. It hasn't kept people from leaving the faith. And sometimes it doesn't even really help when we are in doubt or when we suffer. Slogans just don't quite cut it, right? If really, if God really does love us, we need to know this for ourselves. We need to know this personally. And it has to be, greater than our pain. It has to be a hope that we know personally that is even greater than our pain, greater than our burdens, greater than our pressures, greater than our weaknesses. It even has to be, if this is true, that God loves us and that Christ is greater, it even has to be greater than our joys and our wins. All of life's highs, all of life's lows, if it's really true that Christ is greater, it's gotta be greater than all of those things, right? This is exactly what Hebrews is about. It's about the fight. A very like gritty, super plain, even though there's all this like majestic language in it, it's really at a heart, at its heart, this super plain fight to see if it's really worth being a Christian in this world, despite everything we face. 
Because if this faith, if this trust that we put in Jesus is not true, then it's just another drug that we take to make us feel better during the week, right? It's just another thing that just kind of satisfies the longings that we have, but doesn't really satisfy them in the end. If our faith isn't true, if Christ is not really greater, can we just say this? Let's just pack it up and do something else. But if it is true, think about this. But if it is true that Christ is actually greater than our pains, than our joys, if it's true that Christ is unquestionably, unquestionably beyond great than these, greater than these things, anything else that we trust, anything else that we put our hopes in, if Christ is really greater than these things, if that's true, this could absolutely change everything for us. What if it's true? What if it's true? Let's begin in verse one in chapter one. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter one, verse one, in your scripture journals or in your Bibles, and by the way, if you don't have a scripture journal or a Bible, we've got both of those for you. We have stacks of Bibles. You should have a Bible if you don't have one. But we also have scripture journals, which are these. Does anyone have them with them? Pam, you have these. Look at these things. These are awesome. You open it up. There's the passage on the left. There's some note paper on the right. Um, we would love to give you one of these. We have them in the, in the lobby uh, after the service. You can grab one and study each week with us as we come to these texts as a church. It's a great way for us to study together. Well, in chapter one, verse one, the author begins by addressing how we even know about God and what he's doing in the first place. Let me read this for us. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. Verse two. By the way, I'm reading in the NRSV, and I know you're reading the ESV, but you get the point, right? Kind of like a good fresh reading on either side. Next week, I'll read an ESV for you. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. Now, at first glance, this may seem like just some sort of like preamble, like he's getting warmed up, but there's not really anything here. There's a ton here. I want to meditate on this for a minute. We knew first about God, not because God, most likely, who knows, not because God like poked out of the clouds and said, hello, my child, you should know about me. We first knew about God because of others, other people. We knew about God because we belong to a community and, and the word got passed down to us that God is real and he loves us. That's how we found out about God was by the word of other people, even written in scripture. And that's okay. That's actually like really okay. It's not something to be afraid of. That's actually how it worked. This is what... This passage is saying to us. In fact, that's how all revelation works. Think about this. How do mathematicians know equations? Most likely those mathematicians didn't figure that out for themselves, but they were handed on this knowledge by others in the community and the discipline of mathematics, right? How do we know how to cook? I don't know how to cook because we read the box, right? Or others who actually know how to cook. Um, someone special in our lives probably taught us an amazing recipe. It was revealed to us by other people. How do farmers know how to farm? What seasons, when? I don't know nothing about, Stephen, you know everything about this. Most of what you learned was given to you by someone else who's done it, right? Praise the Lord. 
Most of, in fact, all that we know has been revealed to us by a community who first knew it and then passed it along to us. It's how it works. If you want to say, for instance, one plus one equals four, the mathematic tradition, is that how you say it? I don't know. Mathematicians will say you're wrong. Based on what? Based on the widely held uh, belief and agreement in the tradition of mathematics and in that community of authority that says you're wrong. You don't usually like pull out rocks and say, see, because if you can, you don't prove it. You usually say, well, because that's what we all know. This community of mathematics has said to us with authority that one plus one equals two. We know this most likely because we didn't figure it out on our own, but because others told us about us, about this. If you want to go and practice medicine without gaining authority to do so, you will be breaking the law. Why? Because you're not good at medicine? No, because there is a community given authority to actually protect the knowledge of how medicine works and not kill people, right? To keep people safe. And you actually have to pass through that community and gain that kind of recognition to be able to practice medicine. This is how it works. I think you guys get this, right? Knowledge and authority is carried in communities of people. Knowledge of God is no different. I know this may be like uh, making some people a little nervous, like, wait a second, Sean. We can't just be dependent on people to know about God. There's got to be something way more fantastic involved here. There is, but just hang on a second, okay? Because we usually just skip over this without taking it seriously, looking at it squarely. Knowledge of God is no different. Yes, we experience God personally. Some of us, most of us, have experienced God in some way personally. But he has largely revealed himself to you through community. For instance, think about this. How do you know God is Trinity? You, you didn't read the word Trinity in the Bible. You probably weren't thinking in your own like, oh, God is three in one. But a community, the church, has through the centuries come to understand this of God, even in reading scripture, and has passed along this understanding to you. That's how this works. And it's good. It's okay. You didn't write your own Bible. Where did you get that thing that you're holding? Even in that scripture journal, where did that come from? Did you write that? No, you didn't. And you can't even read it for yourself if you're reading it in English. I'm going to read my Bible for myself. Not, you can't, actually. If you're, especially if you're reading it in English, you're reading it with a team of translators who are peeking over your shoulder and telling you what the original Greek and all the manuscripts really meant. This is getting complicated, huh? People are so involved. Humanity and history is so involved in what we know of God. And can I just signal to us, guys, this is okay. It's actually not threatening to our faith, our understanding of how we've come to our faith, but it's actually all the more fantastic that God in his wisdom would use broken people like us and such a, a crazy history of humanity to bring about knowledge of him to us in Austin, Texas, even today. Isn't that amazing that he would entrust all of that and through it all, make sure that you know that he's here and that he loves you and he's revealed himself to you in his son. That's amazing. That's actually way more amazing than if something would have just fallen from the sky. That would have been a much better shortcut, right? But instead, God has used humanity to speak to us. We, friends, whether you recognize it or not, belong to a community of faith. We belong to a tradition to which we believe God has spoken to real people 
through history. This, friends, if we can just kind of sober up as Christians, step out of the, like the religious mind of things, if we could just look at this from the outside, this is really audacious that we would say that God has spoken to a community through which we know him. That's pretty fantastic. So you can see how non-Christians or people who maybe have some serious doubts, that's like a respectable doubt. That's pretty incredible to think that God has spoken to a community and that's how we know so much about him. Now we can choose to not believe this about God, that he's spoken through people and prophets and revealed himself in scripture. Lots of people don't believe this, but don't fool yourself. If, if, if you don't believe that, don't fool yourself into thinking that you are more enlightened or more objective. You are just actually submitting yourself to another perspective, another tradition, another community of thought with a certain uh, uh, sets of beliefs. It's just another set of beliefs. No matter what we believe, whether we think the faith is true and valid or questionable and we have some doubts, no matter what we believe or what we've come to believe, it always involves information we have first received in faith from others that we have come to trust. Of course, there's more in the Christian faith. Can you imagine if that was it? There's more. Christians believe that God has in the past revealed himself to us through the law, through the scriptures, through the prophets, but also in this, look at verse two. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He's spoken to us by a son. Now the son is not just a mouthpiece of God. He doesn't just speak for God, but he is the messianic heir, like the scripture says, of all things. He is the agency of God by which all things were created. Everything that has come to be was created through this son. When we look up to the heavens, like the psalmist, we're fascinated by the vastness of the cosmos. When we look up at the night sky and think, Oh, this is amazing. This is beautiful. We're overcome by our own sense of smallness in that moment when we see the largeness of the cosmos and we might even have a thought like the psalmist, what are human beings, God, that you would be mindful of us, these little finite little creatures in this vast sea of the cosmos filled with wonder. And all of that wonder and all that mystery and all that beauty that we gaze upon, we know in our bones is beyond our understanding, is beyond our comprehension. It's almost too much for us even to look upon sometimes. And all of that, all of that creation reflects not something arbitrary. It's not just beautiful because science is beautiful. Science is beautiful. But that beauty, that wonder, that mystery is actually a reflection of the one through whom it was created. The beauty that we see in creation isn't a beauty that creation has in and of itself, but it's a beauty that has been passed on to it by the one through whom it was created. Does that make sense? It's rubbed off some of the characteristics of the beauty of Jesus, the son. Look at verse three. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. This person that scriptures are describing is not a carbon copy of God. It's 
not like God CC'd, you know? He's more than just a messenger like the prophets. Catch the gravity of what Hebrews is saying right here. He is the exact imprint of God's very being. And all creation, all authority, all powers, all glory hangs on his every word. What does it mean to take the incomprehensible, the infinite majesty of God and see the exact imprint of it? If your brain isn't kind of breaking under the weight of this, um, you're not seeing it quite right. This almost doesn't make sense. That the unintelligible can now be intelligible. That the invisible can now become visible. That the beauty of God, the fullness of everything that God is, is somehow wrapped up in its fullness in the person of Jesus. This God wasn't just up there for us to worship him, to go, wow, that's cool. God, you're greater than things. That's not enough, actually, and that's not even enough for God because in his greatness, he took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Not as some messenger, not as some fake king, not as some emissary, not as some representative or ambassador, but as God himself taking on the fullness of the glory of God and the person of Jesus coming and dwelling among us. So much so that when we look to the face of Jesus, we're looking at the face of God. Y'all, that's crazy. That's amazing that when we look to Jesus, we can gaze upon the beauty of God. But how is that? How is that? How can finite creatures like us look upon something infinite? How can we comprehend the incomprehensible? Who in the world is this son, Jesus? Has he come to overpower us? Has he come, the fullness of God, has he come in power to just like dominate things and, and like set things right over and against us and overpower us? Has he come to take over? Has he come to domineer and use force and disrespect everybody in order to win respect for himself? Is this the fullness of God that's come to dwell? What does it mean to be the fullness of God who's moved into our neighborhood and come close to us? Right there, I think I lose most people who have had a bad run-in with some other Christian, some other pastor, maybe like really terrible parents, some authority figure in their life who now has an image of God that is to come into your life and ruin things and to oppress you and domineer you and then shape you into this like Christian person. When we look upon the beauty and the fullness of God, from that fullness to being revealed in Jesus, there's a really critical thing that has to happen. That has to be defined on God's terms, not on yours. That has to be greater than the baggage that you bring to this, what you think you know about this God who is now coming close to you and now you can gaze upon, you can know personally, this Jesus. Has he come like a bull in a china shop? How does this God full of power use his power among us? Verse three goes on, he says, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, as a high priest making purification of sins, as a king sitting at the hand of the majesty on high. This one Jesus Christ, this revealed God who we see, who we can know, has come not to blow us over, 
but has come to use his infinite power to purify our sins. To step into the mud of humanity and to wash us clean. This is how this Jesus uses the fullness of God as himself. This is what he's come to do, not to oppress, but to deliver, to free, to cleanse. And all for his glory and beauty and majesty and goodness. Verse six and seven says, he has come low to serve, to be mindful of us, to care for us. And you may choose not to believe that there is a God who loves you so much that he would use the entire arsenal of like cosmic heavenly scale and scope, right? He would use all of that. He would put that to work. He would put his power to work for your sake that your sins could be washed clean. Some of you may choose not to believe that. I respect that. But God doesn't need you to make sense of him in order for that to be true. He does it nevertheless. Even in our own doubts, even in our own pain where we go, Sean, I hear you, but you don't know my life right now. It stinks. There's no way that there's a God who loves me. Even in the doubt and the pain and the burden and the pressure that you face, just like these readers of this letter in Hebrews, who may turn to another faith, who may flee and find something else to do, despite all that, God still does this, regardless of your belief or not. He doesn't need us to make him reasonable for us. And he isn't concerned with fitting into our worldview, whatever that is. He realizes, I'm sure, that our worldview isn't quite big enough to fit him. God does not need or feel the need to impress you. He doesn't feel the need to prove himself to you. He's not self-conscious like us. But out of a simple, simple love for us, Jesus Christ, the Son, the incarnate God, submitted himself to costly suffering so that, as verse 9 says, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Even if you didn't notice, he was willing to do this. He loves us, friends. Even if maybe we never get around to loving him back, he still loves us even if we totally don't understand all the time the way things go or who he is, he still loves us. And he's already done what he's done for us. That should be a little freeing. That our response to God isn't contingent on our understanding of him or even if he works for our good in the ways that we want him to in the time that we want him to. Nevertheless, he loves us and he's present with us in our lives, exactly where we live. Not in some fake sort of religious Christianity over here that, you know, everybody goes to church and smiles and everyone went to catechism class. By the way, you should come to that. It's super fun. Not in that place, but Jesus moves into our real lives, into the dirt of the stuff we're dealing with right now. And he doesn't need you to make sense of him there. He's still there. Whatever burdens you have, whatever joys you have, whatever excitements, whatever pains, in all of it, God has moved in to our lives and is present with us. And he desires, and I think we got to meditate on this, God desires to be present with us. He wants to be with us. He wants to share in these moments with us that we're not alone. 
And he so desired this that out of love, he's determined in his good time to set all of that right. Maybe not now, maybe not in the ways that we hope or ways that we think, but God has determined out of love that in the end, all of this is going to be made right. And he won't rest until it is made right. And that making things right, it doesn't start somewhere else, but this morning it starts with us. A people who have now just listened to a priest say, God is present and has moved into our lives. He loves you. The unfathomable beauty of God has been wrapped up in the fullness of this person, Jesus, that we can look to. I keep pointing to the center of the room because when we take the gospel book, this is a, a symbol of the, 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 descent, the grand ascension of God, the incarnation. God from the heavens taking on flesh and blood and moving into our personal space. That's why I keep pointing here. This is the God that we are talking about this morning. This is the one that's so determined to come into our lives and to live with us. And it's because of this, friends, not because of us, but because of God's love for us and his son revealed to us that we can say Christ is greater. What other display of love, what other show of pure charity and kindness have you ever known that's greater than this? What other person have you ever known who said, you know, it's even if you hate me, even if you doubt in me, I still love you and has proven it even to the point of death like Jesus. Christ is greater, but he doesn't stay away in his greatness that he comes near to us, cleansing us of guilt and sin and guiding us as a friend, as a king. Jesus is greater. This morning, we come to the altar, not to just talk about the greatness of Jesus, but to receive that gift of God speaking and becoming visible and apparent and present in our lives to receive that even in our own lives. And as an act of prayer, I wanna invite you as you come forward in just a few minutes, what is that place, that corner of your life that with all of its doubts and burdens and pressures, you could say, Jesus, I want you to be present. I need you to be present here in my life. Receive his presence in communion that way. Whatever joys, whatever like um, celebrations, whatever wins you have in your life, likewise, what, is the, what are those places you can say, Jesus, I need you to be present here too because it is only by your goodness that I have this joy. Be present here. What are those ways that we can invite this unfathomable revelation of God become present in our lives? How can we invite that into the moments of our everyday lives even now? Let's take a moment of silence and ask the Holy Spirit that very question. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.